Bibles now, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. And when you found that scripture, I'd like you to hold on to that. And if you'll turn to the second letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 1, verse number 6, I'm going to read our text in Second uh, Timothy first, and then we'll go to the beginning of the 12th chapter, Romans, to that very familiar passage of scripture. And my subject for this evening is stirred to serve. Uh, For several weeks, we've been on the subject of evangelism, and uh, we finished that study last Sunday evening, but although we're done with that, it ought always to be on our minds, and we want to make use of those sermons that we've heard over the past few weeks. Uh, Evangelism is the lifeblood of the church. It always ought to be on our minds, but we do need to move along a little bit further this evening, and I think it would be good for us to look at these scriptures and talk a little bit uh, tonight about service to the Lord. So Paul, writing to Timothy shortly before his death, said, Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now this evening it's not my purpose to expound this particular verse of scripture. Uh, It could lead us down a lot of different paths trying to discover what Paul meant by the gift that was given to Timothy. Is that some kind of an extraordinary gift? Is that something beyond what uh, Christians normally get when they trust in the Lord? Uh, We could discuss that and then we could discuss the manner in which Timothy received the gift. Paul said that He received it by the putting on of his hands or the laying on of his hands. And that would lead us into another discussion as well. But we're not going to talk about those things. I want you to just concentrate or keep in mind that Timothy was told to stir up the gift of God. So whatever that gift was that was given, he was told to keep that gift alive, not to neglect it. And he was to use it in the service of the Lord. Now we go to Romans chapter 12. And in Romans, this 12th chapter is, the, is where the practical section of Romans begins. Uh, Paul has just written 11 chapters on uh, doctrine and always with him. He starts with the doctrine. He builds his foundation on that. Then he talks about the implications of the doctrine. And then there's a practical section that comes in which he speaks of the implementation of the doctrine. And the focus of the entire book of Romans is on the doctrine of salvation. And actually, it's the most advanced treatment that you find of that doctrine in all of the Scripture. And so assuming that the reader has grasped everything that Paul has said in those first 11 chapters, when you've got this great doctrine in your mind, the great salvation that God has given us, then it ought ought to lead you to some very obvious conclusions. And his premier conclusion is found in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, there are two words that stand out in this text. There are two words that really do demand our attention here. Paul says that God's redeemed people are to be a living sacrifice. And those aren't words that we ought to pass over quickly or lightly. 
If you're a student of God's Word, you are very familiar with the word sacrifice. That has a very important part in Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, we know that people were always making sacrifices. There were animal sacrifices. The animals were killed, the blood was drained from them, and then they were burned on the altar. On the day that the temple was dedicated, Solomon sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 122,000 sheep. Sometimes I think we read those scriptures and we just, it just kind of bounces off of us. We don't take time to think about what really, really what a bloody religion that the Jewish religion was. Sacrifice is the centerpiece of the religion. Then we also find human sacrifices in scripture. And those are never sanctioned by God. It's always heathen idolaters, worshipers of Molech and such gods that offered heathen sacrifice or offered uh, human sacrifices on their altars. And one of the reasons that the, uh, Joshua was told to destroy the Canaanites out of the land of Israel was because of this wicked practice of these people in offering their children as sacrifices, human sacrifices. So we come to this text in the New Testament. And God is still talking about sacrifice. And we know the sacrifice of Christ has already been made. Uh, Paul is speaking after that's taken place. But here the word of God still talks about sacrifice. Here it's not the sacrifice of animals. It's not a dead sacrifice that is to be offered. But it is to be a living one. And note that the living sacrifice is you. That you're supposed to give all of your body, all of your soul, all of your mind into the service of God. Now, Charles Hodge notes that this means that our service to God is not transient. It means that it doesn't last for only a short time. Uh, you take a, an animal sacrifice, they, they kill the animal, put it on the altar, and it burns up very quickly and it's gone. This is not that kind of sacrifice. It's called a living sacrifice because it's perpetual. It's to keep on going. It's never to be neglected. So as Paul said to Timothy, we are to stir this up. Stir up what God has given us. Stir up the, the attitude of being a living sacrifice for God. Keep that in your mind and in your heart and not forget what you have been saved for. So that's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes this evening. Now, Paul's previous doctrine in Romans has been about many different aspects of the great salvation that God provides for us. But he, he tells us here that what we need to do in relation to all of that is to be moved into being a living sacrifice. Now here we find some profound thoughts in the word of God and there's no way we'll exhaust this text this evening. But I just want to give you some thoughts about this. I want you to notice some things about God's salvation and what our response to that should be. Now, number one, when we have been saved, service is our obligation. Now, God is never obligated to save us. But we can certainly say that our salvation obligates us to serve him. Now, one of the vivid pictures that we have in Scripture is how we are enslaved that before we're saved, that we're enslaved in the, kingness, in the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of Satan. You know, there are many people that like to talk about their freedom, and they believe that they're free to do anything that they want to do. But Jesus very clearly taught that those who are not believers in him are actually enslaved, and they're enslaved to Satan. When he was speaking to the Jews in John chapter 8, he told them that believers in him are set free. You're free if you believe in him. 
Uh, in John eight thirty one, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, there were other Jews that were listening to that statement, and they became indignant about it. And they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now, the Jews' statement about physical freedom was wrong. Uh, they knew better than this. They'd been enslaved for hundreds of years. They were in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. They were in, in slavery uh, to the Babylonians. Then the Medes and the Persians ruled over them. Then the Greeks ruled over them. And at the moment that Paul writes this letter, the, or as Jesus spoke to them rather, uh, the Romans ruled them. So they were wrong about physical slavery. But more than that, they were wrong about their spiritual slavery, that their souls were in bondage to sin. They were ruled by Satan, who is the God of this world. Salvation is described to us as being set free from that slavery. Now, if you'll turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 6, we can see here where sin is called slavery, and then what happens when we're delivered from it. Romans chapter 6 at verse number 16, Paul says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now, there is the obligation. We have been freed from sin. And that doesn't mean that we are now free and we don't belong to anybody but us. Now, when grace, the grace of God comes in salvation, we are freed from one master, and that's the tyranny and the slavery of sin, and we're saved to serve another master in holiness and righteousness. We have been redeemed by Christ, and that word means that we have been bought out of the slave market of sin, and we become the ownership of a new master who is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So redemption in Scripture, salvation in Scripture, is a picture of a purchase that's been made by God. I remember a few years ago I heard a, a story about a young girl who was on an auction block in a slave market. And there was a slave owner who was a very cruel man who was bidding on this young girl and uh, wanted to purchase her to be a slave. But he was just a cruel man. And every time that this man put down a bid, this young girl just cringed in fear. Fear would come into her eyes. But there was another man there also, and he was a plantation owner. This man was always kind to his slaves, and he was also bidding on the same slave girl. So he put his money down, and he actually won the bid. He put his money down, and he walked away. And that young slave girl began to follow him. And he turned around to her, and he said, You misunderstand. I bought you in order to set you free. Well, that stunned the girl. She didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. Finally, she just fell to her knees, and she said, Thank you, thank you, I will serve you forever. 
And that's a picture of what Christ has done for us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. And because he loved us so much, because he was willing to do so much, now we're willing to serve him. So we have an obligation to serve. That comes with salvation, being owned by the Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Well, a second observation that we can make is that service comes from motivation. Verse number 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And there I think we can find one of the chief motivators for our service. And that is that we receive many mercies. We receive the mercies of God. Now, beseech that we see in this passage is, a, is an interesting term. It's the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit in his work of comforting and helping the believer. The word that we have here is the word parakaleo. Mentioned that this morning in our Sunday morning form class, the word parakaleo, and it means a comforter, the one called alongside to comfort, and that's what the Holy Spirit is. He's a comforter, he's affectionate towards us. But as we see the word used here, beseech means a, a gentle urging and appeal to the Christian to consider what God has done for us in our salvation. Now, going back to the Earlier chapters in Romans, we learned there that we were sinners without any hope, that we were uh, under the judgment of God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul explains how that the hardness of our hearts and our attitude towards God, our, our refusal to come to him in salvation, the sins that we commit against him had caused us to treasure up wrath until the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And you remember when Paul was writing to the Ephesians that he told the Gentile believers there that at one time, that before they came to Christ, he said, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. And we look at that and we see that for each and every one of us, that's what God has bought us out of. And he's given us great mercies in order to do that. Now, the mercies of God really ought to motivate us to serve him. You see, what God could do, God could force us to serve him. But he didn't do that. Instead, he chose to load you with benefits. And when he did that, he actually changed the motivation of our service from that of punishment. We don't, we're not motivated to serve because we're afraid we'll be punished. But out of the sincere love that we have for him, understanding the sincere love that he had for us, and all the blessings that he gives, then we receive the benefits from his hands, and so we want to serve God. Now, God certainly could have used uh, judgment as a motivator. He could have forced us. He could have scared us into doing it. And really, when you read the Apostle Paul, you would, you would think sometimes he, he wouldn't be too far off track if he were to use that tactic. If you believe that Paul is the one who wrote Hebrews, you could turn there to chapter 12 in which he talks about chastisement. And God could say to us, you know, you're going to do this. And if you don't do it, I'm going to just, just beat you every which way from Sunday. You're going to have to do this. Or you could go to Galatians and you could read in chapter 6 verse 7 where it says that you're going to sow what you reap. And so God could say, I'm not going to give you any further mercies. You, you're not going to receive anything else from me because what I expect right now, I have saved you and I expect perfect obedience. And if you don't give it to me, you will suffer the consequences. But that's not the tactic 
that's used in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We have the word beseech there. We have a, a gentle urging at this to be a living sacrifice. So we're not talking about a sacrifice that's involuntarily bound on an altar. No, this is a, a sacrifice that chooses to serve God out of this sincere love we have for what he's done for us. Now, at the end of verse number 1, we see that the service is reasonable, Paul says. Why is it reasonable? Because of all the mercies that God gives. Now, think about that. Think about the mercies that he gives. You know, someone has said that grace is getting what we do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And so you see that grace and mercy are two very closely connected concepts in Scripture. In fact, you might say they're uh, opposite sides of the same coin. We don't deserve anything that God gives us, and what we do deserve, God doesn't give us. So what have we received at the hand of God? Well, we've received his peace. We receive hope and glory. There's righteousness. We receive justification and reconciliation, eternal life. We receive freedom from punishment. We receive the intercession of the Spirit. We receive sonship in which we become heirs with Christ. And we could just keep on going, listing mercy after mercy after mercy that God gives. David summed it up this way in Psalm 68. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits even the God of our salvation. So God loads us with benefits, and all of those mercies are the motivation for service, especially when you consider what's happened in your heart, where God roots out all of the selfishness that could be our motivation. Now, selfishness is one of those things that I think is an antonym of love, and our service is not built upon our selfishness. But having said that, I want you to notice the second motivator for serving God, and that is enlightened interest in self. We serve God because we have a new enlightened interest in self. Now you say, well, that, that has to be a contradiction to what you just said. You say we don't serve God out of selfishness, so his motivation of enlightened self-interest is that contradictory. I don't think it is. Let me show what I mean. Uh, we really don't need to go any further than the words of Jesus. He said in Matthew six nineteen and 20, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. Now, Jesus had service in mind in that scripture, and he says, Lay up for yourselves. Think about yourselves in this. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Serving God for a reward is not a taboo subject in Scripture. And I've heard people who think that it is. They say, don't serve God for reward. There's even a song that says, do then the best you can, not for reward, not for the praise of men, but for the Lord. And I think that song actually had a pharisaical type of service there that or pharisaical rewards and they're definitely wrong because that's when a person serves God or does something in order to get the praise of men but when we honestly serve God looking for a reward and looking for the praise of God for what we do when we seek his praise that's one of the ways that increases our capacity to enjoy heaven that's why God gives rewards it increases that capacity to enjoy heaven now, we sing this song, 
I've got a mansion over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And there's other songs that people sing, and you probably heard, maybe you've heard this one, I don't know. But the words of that song are, Give me just a cabin in the corner of glory land. And I don't think that's enlightened self-interest. I think that's dim-witted underachievement to ask for something like that. I don't think there's going to be any cabins with dirt floors when we get into heaven. And that's because God always deals with superlatives. You never want to downgrade what God has promised to give because you have some sort of pretended piety. This is what's really called enlightened interest in self, that we know that when we serve God, he's going to bless us. Greater service to God brings greater reward. And then also in that same vein, we have this motivation, and that is powerful persuasion of others. We serve God in order to persuade others. See, working for God is a way to spread the influence of God's kingdom. And as God's kingdom spreads throughout the world, things get better for Christian people. Now, there, there are Christians that think that the way that we're going to change things is to influence the government. That we get the government to implement Christian standards and everything will be so much better if we get human government on our side. Human government has never been tasked with doing the things of God. It's not going to do God's work. Now, if we want to have a better place to live, if you want to enjoy where you live, then we need to influence people to serve God rather than expecting the government to to take the place of of what Christians should be doing and hoping they're going to force people to serve God. Now, one of these days, God is going to put in all the laws that need to be in place to force the world to serve him, and that comes when he establishes his kingdom on the earth. But his kingdom is not here yet. We don't live in that time. It hasn't happened. So if you want a better place to live, if you want to enjoy your life as a Christian, then start working in a greater way for the kingdom of God. Serve Christ. Be a light to the world. And that's what Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we see service is our obligation. Service comes from motivation. And now thirdly, service requires determination. You must be determined to serve God. Now, I know, I know that that is, is really evident. I mean, there, there are people that just truly do not understand what we do. They don't understand Christians. They don't understand why we would take a Sunday and we would want to dedicate this entire day to serving God, morning and evening to have services and come to church and serve God. Why do we bring 10% of our income plus and put it into the offering plate when it goes by? Why does somebody dedicate themselves to the mission field when it would be so much easier just to stay right here, stay where we have all the modern conveniences and not have to worry about living a hard life on a mission field. Well, there are many Christians who don't want to be a living sacrifice. See, what they've done is they've given up church service on Wednesday nights a long time ago. They don't come on Wednesday nights anymore. And lots of Christians have given up Sunday night services It's hard to find a church that even has a service on Sunday night. In fact, I think, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we're the only church in Roner Park that has a service on Sunday night. You know, I think how much easier it would be if I only had one sermon to prepare every week, if all I had to do was Sunday morning. Now, some of you may not be able to stand it because I'd have a whole lot to say in that one sermon. 
and I'd get my three hours in one way or the other. But it seems like that would be the really easy thing to do. One service on Sunday, we're out of here. Well, churches have done that. Some of them have even gone so far as to switch to Sunday night services. That's so everybody can have Sunday free. My daughter sent me a, a, a text message a couple of days ago, and someone had delivered a flyer to her door for a church there in San Diego that had an, an express service. <laughs> It's kind of like a drive through I think, but it was the express service. And so they would have the service. You come on a Saturday night, guaranteed 45 minutes in and out. Don't get into singing, don't do anything else, get the message and you go. 45-minute express service. Well, I seem to remember something in the Word of God that says that there is a day that is the Lord's day, that there is a day that belongs to Him. And I think being a living sacrifice means giving God that whole day. I have some relatives that their highest priority in finding a church was that it would be located near the beach. And that would be they could go on Sunday morning and hit the service for a few minutes and then after it's over, head for the beach and spend the rest of the day there. And, I, and people say, you know, what's the best way to get people in church? And they say, location, location, location. Build a church near the beach. Or maybe what we could do, we'll set a tent up in the parking lot of the Roner Park Cinemas and have church over there. Or better still, put it in the parking lot of Hooters because it's hard to get people to be Romans 1, uh, 12, 1 and 2 Christians. So what we've done then is, uh, as Christians, we bought into the world's philosophy, we join in the world's entertainment, we flirt with the flesh. And so commitment to God is really something that's out of the question. So you might ask the question, and people do, how, how is it that we have people in church on Sunday nights and in church on Wednesday nights? How do people, how are they able to make it to all the services? How do people faithfully bring in their tithes and offerings when we're faced with such a bad economy? How do people have the time with all the things that are going on to sit down and study a Sunday school lesson? How do men come over here on a Saturday and women on a Saturday and keep the grounds neat and clean and do work around the church that needs to be done? How do they do that? Is that an easy thing for them to do? Are these some kind of super Christians that that they've defeated the flesh? There are no more battles with the flesh. They've left the devil long, long behind, a long time ago. The devil doesn't bother them anymore, so they just don't worry about him. No. We all have to battle with the flesh. But the thing is, we have to be more determined than ever to overcome the flesh. Now, you notice what Paul says has to be given to God. He said, present your bodies, your bodies, a living sacrifice. Now, if you're saved and you are redeemed, that means that your soul is purchased. Your soul is redeemed, that means the soul is set. So we're not talking about people that haven't yet given their souls to God. And that's what our present salvation is. When the Bible talks about present salvation, it means that uh, our souls have been given to God, our spirits are God's, we're set as far as salvation is concerned. But the scripture also has something to say about the body. Not just the spirit, but also the body. We're still waiting, the Bible says, for the redemption of the body. Now there's where the problem comes in. Now if you look in Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, let's take a look here and see what has to happen to the body. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 18, it says, For I reckon 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they... But ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we also groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now, all of creation is waiting for the lifting of the curse from the earth. All of the creation is cursed, and that's because of the fall. And you know that Paul says here that we are also waiting for the same. Those of us who had the first fruits of the Spirit, those of us whose spirits have been redeemed to God, our souls are redeemed to God, that's all taken care of. But we're waiting for what, does he say? We're waiting for the redemption of our body. Sin manifests itself in the body. Now, that doesn't mean that the human, human flesh, your, your skin here, that doesn't mean that it's inherently sinful But sin is worked out through the body. The body is what carries through with evil works. For instance, if you were out late last night where you shouldn't have been, was it your spirit that was there? Or did your body take you there? How did you get there? Well, you were there in your body. If you drank something that you shouldn't have drank drunk last night, did your body swallow that? How did it get in you? Well, the body did that. If you saw something that your eyes shouldn't have seen, how did that sight get into your brain? Well, it had to use your body. And you see what we're saying here? That it's the body through which sin works. Now, one of these days, the, uh, the body's going to go into the grave, and the Bible says that the spirit is going to be set free from the corruption of the body. But that's only for a time. Because when Jesus comes back, he's going to raise that body, and he's going to make it incorruptible, We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The body is going to change, and the body itself will also be redeemed. So it goes into the grave as a corruptible body. It comes out of the grave an incorruptible body, and we get this body back. It's rejoined to our spirits in perfectly good shape. It's healthy, wealthy, and wise. But until that happens, we have to fight the body. And that's what's going on with every Christian in the room tonight. We are fighting this body. Paul says, I have to beat my body black and blue to bring it into the subjection of Christ. Now, here's the thing that it takes. It takes a great determination to fight back the flesh. And the simple truth of the matter is, some of you are doing it and some of you aren't. And this is why this is a better sermon probably preached on a Sunday morning. Some of you are doing it and some of you aren't. Some people are not trying to beat back the flesh. And so they're not determined that they're going to hold the flesh down and put it into the subjection of Christ. But this is what Paul says. We must be a living sacrifice. There's only one way that God can work through us and that's through our body. Now, some people think, well, no, that's not quite right, that God works through the Spirit. That's how he works with us, through the Spirit. And so you have people that say, well, I I can't be in church on Sunday, but I'll be there in the spirit. But I've noticed that spirits don't put money into the plate 
on, on Wednesdays when Gary and John uh, count the offerings, I usually step into Gary's office right after the service before I go home. And you know, not one time has John ever said to me, now, Pastor, here is the count of the offering from the bodies, and here's our spiritual count. And, and that's because Chase did not give us a spiritual checking account. We don't have a number for that one. No, how, how is God going to work through you? He has to use your body. He has to have the body. He has to have your voice to witness. He has to have your hands to help. He has to have your feet to go. Your ears are the ones that have to hear. And so that means for God to have your body, you have to be determined to fight it back. Fight, it, fight back at it. To fight the old natural desires that you have. Fight to put those things down. And this is what he's talking about. To be a living sacrifice, you have to be somebody willing to beat the body into subjection. And that's not easy. It's not easy. If it was easy, then every member of Brian Church would take the easy way out. If it was easier to live for the Lord than it is for the world, then our membership would not be giving so much of themselves to the world. They wouldn't keep on doing what the world's doing. If it was harder to do that, they do it because it's the easy thing to do. If it's easy to get rewards, and you really did believe those things would last forever, then, then you wouldn't stop giving your body to the Lord. You would always yield yourself to God if it was easy. You have to be determined to do this. And here's the thing about it. The only difference between a Christian that serves the Lord and one who doesn't is the determination to do it. And that's because we all have the same spirit in us, we all have the same Savior. We all have the same Lord. We all have the same power that's available to us. The problem is, some are determined and some are not. Now, let's look at one more. We have obligation and motivation and determination. And when we get all of that into the right perspective, what have you have? Service proves consecration. Now, do you see that in the text? Being a living sacrifice proves that you are consecrated to God. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now there's way too much in the short amount of time that I have left to deal with all of this. And some of you less consecrated Christians, you probably think, no, you don't have enough time to deal with that. You need to be done. We need to be finished. We need to be out the door here. Well, I don't have any time left. So what I'm going to do is just throw the whole ball at you at once on this. When you forsake the world so that you're not conformed to it, when you don't think like the world, when you have been transformed by a renewed mind, that's a mind that's been renovated by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, what happens to you? Well, it shows itself outwardly. It proves your consecration. When you're consecrated, then your service is acceptable to God. Now, you just flip that around, and you're back to what we have in this passage. That is, when you are accepted by God, then you've done what God has just said here. You've made yourself a living sacrifice. Now, where does that consecration come from? Well, ultimately, we would say, well, it comes from God. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. We're all in agreement with that. But let's look at it another way and just say that it comes from the heart. It comes from a heart that's pure. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Jesus said, 
And we've learned in our studies of Matthew that he said that what's inside of you is the thing that defiles you. The thing that's in your heart is what defiles you. What comes out of your heart is what defiles the outside. And so what enables you to tell that a person is a sinner and an unbeliever is that the things that are in his heart on the inside defiles the outside. So you can tell by the way he acts, by the things that he does. All of his actions tell you what the heart is like. And the same thing is true of a Christian. A pure heart shows itself on the outside. But you can tell a Christian by the things that he does. So his consecration is proved by his service. The service tells you if the heart is right. Now, a living sacrifice then looks like a living sacrifice. Some of you, and maybe not so much in this crowd, this is why I say I need a Sunday morning sermon on this. Some of the membership of the church, let's put it that way, we'll just throw it off on the ones who aren't here. Some of them look like dead sacrifices. They really do. I mean, the outside is scrubby and dingy. Doesn't look Christian at all. Now, you know me. Every one of you here know me. You know that I'm the last person in this church that wants to take a legalistic approach to Christianity. I don't want to do that. But I will tell you this. I'm not going to become an antinomian. And that means that I'm not against the law of God. And I understand this very clearly. That in the Old Testament, when sacrifices were made, they were made according to the law. They had to be done in the right way. Worship was prescribed, and wrong worship brought bad consequences. The wrong kind of worship and the wrong kind of Christianity is a recipe for disaster. There's an article on Table Talk on that, um, I think, last month. Ask Nadab and Abihu about the wrong kind of worship. Now, we may do our best to eliminate legalism, but that does not mean that as Christian people in this church that we can't look better, that we can't act better, that we can't talk better, that we can't think better. All of those things are being a part part of a living sacrifice. And you say, why? Why all this? Because God deserves the best. God deserves the very best that we can give him. And that's where I want to leave it with you tonight. Some people come to church and they see what they can get from God. I've heard so many people complain about this. Oh, church is boring to me. I don't get anything out of it. The reason they don't get anything out of it is because that's not what church is designed for. Church is designed and the Christian life is designed for you to put everything that you have into it. And when you put something into it, I promise you, you get something out of it. So this is what God wants when he says be a living sacrifice. He wants you to put everything that you have into his service. Don't forget, Paul says, to stir up that gift that is in you. Remember the thing that happened to you when you got saved. You got God's mercies. You got all of his benefits. And let that thought stir you to service for him. And if you can think about what God has done for you and not be stirred then you're too thick to be stirred. That's all I can say about you. We have great motivation for serving our our Lord. Service requires our determination. Service is an obligation. And service shows our consecration. Let's be people that have proved consecration to God by our service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time spent tonight. And Lord, we, we pray that you would... Open up our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. And may we 
see very clearly here that as Paul came to that 12th chapter of Romans and he'd been over such this difficult doctrine, such deep doctrine, such profound things that he said about the salvation that we have in Christ, the purchase that God made, what he had to do, what Jesus had to do to bring us out of the slavery of sin that we're in, sacrificing his own self for our good. Lord, may we look at that and say, what, what else could we do but to serve you with everything that we have Lord, I just pray that every member of Berean Baptist Church would would look at that and think about how can I serve God better? Not looking for ways to cut down on their service and not looking for things that they can cut back doing, but instead saying how much more can I serve you with a heart that's full of praise and gratitude for what you've done for me? Lord, we pray that that would be in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.